But then the other side of it is really looking for those opportunities and thinking about how do we change those skills. And we have to behave with I mean, they're, they're, you know, we've gone, we've had this boom bust mentality and in the boom times we overbuilt and, and we did things that, you know, weren't practical because we figured the boom would last forever, just like mm -hmm. it never has, but, but we, we've done that. And so I think that, that operating discipline being, being very careful, working really diligently to make sure we're solving problems that need solving mm -hmm. and, and keep telling that story. The Energy and Transition podcast is the first of its kind exploring the critical role of oil and gas in energy transition. Energy transition is not transition away from hydrocarbons. It's a collaborative effort towards a lower carbon future. And these are the stories of the companies and people that are actively reducing emissions and actually getting us there. Leaders from all sectors will discuss industry trends and topics like emerging technologies, global energy demand, access to capital markets, ESG, and workforce innovation. This podcast is sponsored by PISA, the Petroleum Equipment and Services Association, Locked In Companies, and Galtway Marketing. Welcome to the Energy and Transition Podcast. We're broadcasting from the Fletcher Azul Tequila Podcast Studio in Houston, Texas. I'm your host, Leslie Beyer. Um, this is the very first Energy and Transition Podcast. And so our first guest is Rod Larson, the president and CEO of Oceaneering International. Thank you so much, Rod, for being the esteemed first guest on this podcast. And we are so excited to really take this as a tool to show the world what is really behind innovation and technology and oil and gas that's leading us through the energy transition. You know, you hear so much about that catchphrase, energy transition. What is it? Should oil and gas companies and the oil field services sector be able to get on board with that? And the answer is absolutely yes, I think. Um, and so I'm really interested to kind of get into the weeds with you of what all you do at Oceaneering, how y'all are really developing innovative technologies that are going to take us to this new future of the industry, for sure. And how you feel about, you know, just the, the, the reputation of the industry as we, as we move into kind of this next phase. So with that, as the first guest and knowing what our goal is to really, really show what is behind our industry, um, are you on board with that? What, how do you feel about how we should be looking at energy transition in oil field services and industry-wide? Well, I'm excited. I feel like a real pioneer here. But, but <laughs> you, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about a lot of these topics. So I think it's great to get to tell a little bit more of our story. I, mean, I think that's yeah. what's really important. I don't think we do enough of that. And, uh, and talking more about the, the truly technical side, the innovative side of the oil field is, is always fun. It is. And I think, you know, it can be exciting when we talk about all of these technologies that are emerging. So can you tell us about Oceaneering? Oceaneering International, you have so many industries that you touch with everything that you do. Y'all have exposure to oil and gas, renewables, marine entertainment. I mean, I think one of the coolest things um, that I love to hear about Oceaneering is how you know, y'all are behind the rides in Orlando. It was just at Harry Potter World with my oldest not too long ago. And I saw your your facility in Orlando, which is great. So for a company that touches all of that, 
you know, how, how can tell us a little bit about how you have all exposure to all those different industries? Well, you know, I think a lot of people think it's unique, but if you dig into a lot of our, a lot of our peers, they do more than one thing. And, you know, Oceaneering started as a diving company almost 60 years ago. From there, people say, how did you get involved in the entertainment industry? How did you get involved in doing work for the government or for NASA? And, and it's really pretty organic, which is surprising, but you know, you look at some of the rides we do for um, Universal Studios and Disney, and, you know, they, they look a lot like an ROV. They're auto, you know, they're autonomous systems or uh-huh. semi-autonomous systems. They're vehicles. They're of a size. They have really strict safety requirements. And, you know, we started this way back in, in a time when we went to work on the Jaws ride. That was the first one we did. Really? And so the connection was that the, the ride was built. It was basically an underwater roller coaster, so to speak. And they were wondering who does mechanical systems underwater mm-hmm. and, and they came to an RV company. And so I think that was one of those things you think about space, space is a low gravity, zero gravity environment, much like diving. So working in space, space suits versus diving suits, again, very, I would very organic transfer of information. So it's a, uh, it's a lot of fun. And, and the good part is, is that when you're working on these things, you get a chance to, to deploy the, the technology in a lot of different places. But um, it, it really does drive a lot of the culture of, you know, working in demanding environments. So. Right. Yeah. Especially everything from underwater to space. So there have been a ton of innovations in offshore. I mean, you said an underwater roller coaster. What are some of just in the past decade, the past five years, you know, some of those offshore innovations and, and what do you see coming next? I think some of the things we saw coming in were just that greater amount of autonomous vehicles, you know, more automation, more remote work. And a lot of it's just been driven by the fact of bandwidth. Yeah. And I think a lot of people miss that. But but being able to bring more information in from offshore is, is really key. So as we got stronger networks, we were able to bring more information in. We were able to do more of that remote work. We were able to send more video. Um, so things like 4K cameras you know, high resolution underwater, doing more with machine vision, being able to actually guide things and, and automate certain processes because you had the clarity of vision to do so. A little bit of the uh, artificial intelligence, which I think is 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 going to come even more important later, more of the IoT, all the stuff that's happening. But I think a lot of it has really been unlocked by that, by that bandwidth, by that connectivity to the offshore. And that makes everything safer as well, the automation and, and the IoT. There's fewer people touching things. And, and this isn't even just for oil and gas development, right? I mean, this, this must touch renewables too. So what, do you, what are the safety aspects of all of this automation and all of that? Well, I, I think there's a tremendous amount of just the, the most simple part is that we can do work from the shore versus offshore. So you don't have people on helicopters. You don't have as much transportation. Uh, you're able to have redundancy. You're able to have experts watching experts. So onshore with offshore. Mm-hmm. So you can you can have that redundancy. You can have backup. And and a lot of just that that idea that everything you do again with the machine vision, you can have overrides so that when something happens, you get in a you know we we can set up these areas, these exclusion zones, both just like we've always done around a, a floating drill rig. We can do the same thing around infrastructure subsea. So all of these things that we do uh, create a safer environment, not to mention a cleaner environment, because all of these things result in less carbon. They do. And so how, how, when you work across those industries, when you look at how at automation and IoT and all the impact across all of them, has oil and gas, like, are they at the tip of the spear in that? Or how, you know, how would you compare 
all of that with defense and marine. What's what's picking up the quickest? Who does it best right now? So I think I think they're doing all right, but I think everything we do, the difference is when you do work for the government, you do work for commercial space, especially. Um, you you do work in the automated guided vehicles, which is warehouses and factories that that we serve. A lot of those are solving a specific need. And so whenever offshore we have a specific need, and it used to be, you know, we're going deeper, so we can't use divers, we have to use ROVs. So we 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 became good at ROVs. It, you need that need to really drive innovation and and almost more important to drive acceptance and and you know the the uptake of the innovation that you come up with. So we don't do it as good. I, I don't think offshore because now it's more incremental improvement. So it's okay. harder to get that get that into the system. But whenever there is that specific need, and a lot of it like the response to Macondo of intrinsically safe and mm-hmm. some of the things that we had to change, then we we really drove innovation. We we learn faster and we pick things up faster. So wherever we can do that, whenever we can tie to that one thing that we really need, I think that I think the adoption happens faster. You mentioned our environmental footprint, which is the key area of focus across the industry. How does Oceaneering view sustainability in that way across the enterprise? I know it's an important part of your culture. I see it right there on the front of your external website. You know, how how do you help drive that within Oceaneering? So first of all, I think, you know, that we're we come from a diving background and a lot of the divers are sportsmen. And so I think it's just in our culture that we like taking care of the environment. Mm-hmm. And of course, everybody does. Everybody wants to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Um, so it, it feels good. It's a good thing to have in your culture. And and it's a fun thing to innovate around, quite honestly. I mean, we use an environmentally friendly fluid for the hydraulics. We have for years, long before it was ever mandated, because we just knew it was a way to 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 get ahead of the game. And then the other side of it is, which I think is, is you know, still a business. And And so the commercial side of it is, you know, our customers are taking big pledges. You look, it's, it's for us, most of our customers are the large deep water players right. and they're out there talking about, you know, there's zero, zero carbon promises for the future. And, you know, we got to remember, they don't do a lot of the work themselves. That's right. So a lot of their carbon footprint comes from the things we do. So for them to meet their targets, we have to be good. So it's a great way to differentiate yourself for your customers is to say, we can help you meet your goals faster. And and I think it's got to be more than we won't hold you back. Absolutely. I think that's one of the most important things for people to understand about the oilfield services sector is that, yes, you see the, the producers and the operators and they have these climate goals and they want to achieve them. And at the end of the day, they're going to look at their service providers and their suppliers and say, OK, tell me how we're going to get there. And that's why talking about all this innovation is so critical you know, understanding that this is actually where it comes from. And so I'm just interested in your thoughts on just the broader, you know, context of, oh, oil and gas companies, they're so bad, you know, we're vilified in kind of in the public domain. But really, we are the ones that are driving efficiencies and innovation. And do you see the operators being able to pull more of the service providers to do that? Is it only the public companies? I mean, are the privately held companies do you think that they they may not be as likely to jump on board with that? You know, I I think I think everybody's actually in, and and here's why: we spend a lot of time, I think, thinking that everybody on the outside says you're an oil gas company, energy transition, ESG, they're all existential threats. You you basically have to push back because it's a threat to your survival, and it's not, especially it's not. not as a service company. I mean, if if it's offshore wind. 
we, we're going to do a lot of the same work we do with offshore wind. If they decide to convert offshore oil field platforms uh, to generate hydrogen, we're going to be out there maintaining those offshore platforms. Right. We're energy agnostic. And so we a long time ago, we, we got on board with saying, let's plan early to say, how can we get, you know, how can we get involved in that kind of work? Mm -hmm. And I think we, you know, we are people who provide technical solutions. I mean, part of the reason we're in the situation we're in today is because we're so good at it. Think about we went from not that many years ago from saying peak oil, twilight in the desert, you know, we're going to run out of oil. We got so good at finding and producing oil. And this is a lot of this comes from the service companies get so good at it that now we have the opposite problem. Now we have a very low oil price because, you know, we have so much oil that only the cheapest, cleanest barrels are going to be produced. So when you think about all these other industries, whether it's renewables or whether it's just other marine industries, you know, it, it would only stand to reason that they would come to the people that solve that other problem. They would. And that's that's us. That's OFS. And so you see how we're struggling right now in this market, right? And even, you know, even the producers, like the stocks are starting to go up a little bit. The OSX is still down. You know, how can we best articulate that energy transition is not a threat to survival? Like, how, how are we going to be able to, to do that for ourselves? I think, number one, you know, we have to go out and tell the story about how our, our skills are fungible, that we can go and do that, and we're willing to. I mean, mm -hmm. Because for a long time, we expected that we'd get, we'd get a lot of pushback when we went out and talked. People would only see us as one thing. And so we didn't engage. We didn't take the conversation to them. We kind of just quietly held back and thought, you know, no news is good news. I don't want to talk, <laughs> but nobody asks the question. But we need, we need to take it out there. We need to tell our own story. And that's the only way we can be sure that the story is going to get told. But then the other side of it is really looking for those opportunities and thinking about how do we change those skills. And we have to behave well. I mean, there, you know, we've gone, we've had this boom bust mentality and in the boom times we overbuilt and, and we did things that, you know, weren't practical because we figured the boom would last forever, just mm -hmm. like it never has, but, but we, we've done that. And so I think that, that operating discipline being, being very careful, uh, working really, uh, diligently to make sure we're solving problems that need solving mm -hmm. and, and keep telling that story because we can do it. And, and it may mean a slightly different business model. The problems change. You know, it used to be, you know, it had to be deeper. It had to be higher pressure. You know, those were the problems we were solving in deep water 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And now the problems we're solving is it's got to be cleaner. It's got to be safer and it's got to be cheaper. The key being cheaper as, you know, this, the world and the population just explodes with so many people, almost 4 billion people right now without access to energy that need it. So back to that, do you feel like ESG can be used as a tool, like those ESG metrics and, and ESG investing? Could that be a tool for our companies really to be able to focus on showing what they've been doing, package it in, in a certain way, show that we're mitigating the risk of, you know, all of these things across the enterprise? How should we approach that? Because when you look at where oil field services is right now, especially, I mean, we're struggling, you know, to, to stay afloat because of what's happening in the market. So what do you say to those that say, look, the ESG is just a nice to have, you know, I mean, it's not. So how, how can we convince everyone to come on board, even when their first primary, you know, goal is to keep the lights on? Well, I, I think if you, if you haven't kind of caught on that ESG is not a nice to have, that it really is a, it's a differentiator in, in a lot of cases, not just having an ESG program, but actually having an ESG program that delivers results. 
and and it delivers results for your stakeholders because all your stakeholders are asking this. You know, you're you're trying to attract new talent to the oil field because you know we 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 keep talking about this. We've always had an older than average workforce, and so we continue that because we're not attracting the right rates at the right rates. So they're it's going to be important to them. They're going to care about ESG. Your your shareholders are going to care about ESG. And you know they talk about um, defunding the oil field, right? Is is right. that's one of the ways that you you get away from this is you stop funding this 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 boom growth and you you help you help society wean themselves from oil and gas. And so for the shareholders to give you money, you have to prove that you're on the front foot of oil and gas at least. So I think that that's very important. And then, you know, finally, you know, your customers, we talked about this earlier, your customers care. They have made commitments and they can't get to their commitments without you being on board. So they're going to be watching very carefully who they're going to partner with to see who's on board and who's figured this out. The Petroleum Equipment and Services Association is the global trade association for the oilfield services sector and a proud sponsor of the Energy and Transition podcast. We support OFS in international trade, supply chain, health and safety, environmental policy, and a number of other areas. Our Energy Transition Committee is focused on sharing best practices in sustainability, collaboration with renewables technologies, and driving a smart energy transition. Please join us at PISA.org. That's right. So you mentioned access to capital being kind of just a primary reason to get behind ESG. Um, Also, what about the policymakers? I mean, you see so much with members of Congress and other elected officials, you know, saying, okay, you know, let's just get rid of oil and gas entirely. How can we best position ourselves in Washington um, and broadly, you know, to, to show that we're part of the solution? I think it's I think it's that technology transfer part that we talked about earlier. We are the men and women of oil and gas. I mean, for the for the most part, and and we do employ most of those people that are the innovators, that are the you know that they are the executors that that bring the technology to life, so to speak. And and so we have to be there. And I think they need to understand that that's their constituents. Those are the people that they, the jobs that they're trying to protect. And and we're in it for the right reason. We we aren't trying to hold on to the past. We're trying to move this industry into the future, and we're trying to make sure that, you know, we continue to earn our right to be here, and that is providing clean and safe energy. And I think everybody knows and, and that we're going to be using oil and gas for a while. Right. So we do, again, it, but, but we will only produce the cleanest, safest barrels. So are they going to be the barrels in the United States, or are they going to be barrels somewhere else? And, and, and maybe, I think, again, you're, if you want to have an obligation to global society, it should be the ones in the United States it, or, or at least at the places we operate, because you don't want to leave this to people who aren't going to do it as carefully as we will or with as much diligence towards society and the environment. Absolutely not. And, you know, when I talk to people about frack, you know, people are like, how is it possible? Frack queen is your Instagram <laughs> handle. It's horrible. I'm like, it's fantastic. And you know what? If you understand the technology, you understand that it's safe. And you also understand that at the end of the day, it is all about national security. That is really what that is for us. You, do you want those barrels produced in the U.S. under the strictest regulatory regime in the world? Or do you want them done somewhere else and, and to be re- reliant on that um, in the future? But you you mentioned when you said, you know, looking to the future and what we're going to need. I know you're a huge student of leadership and you're, you do a lot at Oceaneering on bringing in the workforce for tomorrow. And there's so many areas that we could focus on there. 
We need diversity of thought. We need diverse candidates. We need younger candidates. How do you feel that we can really get this message out that we are these applied technology companies? I mean, we're competing with the tech companies for this talent where I think it's a hell of a lot sexier to approach the global energy problem than it is to, hey, I want to design a smartphone. You know, you want to change the world. Let's let's work in energy. So how are we going to attract those people? You know, I, I talk a lot about you know the fact that we have a growing middle class, which is a good thing around the world. And that growing middle class is going to want the same stuff that, that the last middle class had. And, and that's they're going to want more stuff and their stuff's going to use energy. And, and so how are we going to provide that? And we aren't going to do it with the incremental stuff. I mean, we just we can't we can't handle that growth and replace all of the existing oil and gas at the same time with renewables. Not to mention the fact that a lot of this is petrochemical demand for making the stuff. That's right. For making the phones and the cars and, and everything. So I think, you know, getting over that hump that it's just going to go away if we, if, we, if we kind of use the discipline we have, because really to do that, you're probably denying somebody the opportunity around the world that we've enjoyed, especially here in America. We don't want to do that. That's not good for the world. And I think when you tell young people, this is about the betterment of society around the world, but it's got to be clean and it's got to be safe. And we have to do it with respect for the environment and respect for people around the world. They'll get it. And, and I think then they'll say, okay, well, so you're not a dirty, you're not a dirty business. Are you going to be around 10 years from now? And that's the other half. We have to demonstrate that we are making changes. We are moving to where we're not just oil and gas, which, you know, likely will shrink some amount over some period of time. I mean, you can fill in whatever number you want. So then we're going to have to talk about, but we're also going to be involved in renewables. We're going to be involved in marine exploration. We're going to be involved in space exploration. We're going to be involved in other parts of society. So your job will, will be interesting and it will continue. And I think that's how we, that's how we get it. I agree. I think to the extent that we can show them how exciting it is and how it changes the world, you know, that what we do directly impacts the rising of the middle class in all of these countries that in all these non-OECD countries that haven't experienced it like we have, you know, there are not any less, you know, deserving of the life that we're privileged to have here in the United States. So yes, I agree. We have to get the message out that we are in it for the right reasons. We are making these fundamental changes. And, you know, to the extent that we can continue to do it with this podcast, <laughs> you know, I think people are really interested in hearing, you know, and understanding that oil and gas isn't all that it's not bad for for the environment and that we are trying to to solve these problems. But like you said, um, you know, everything, all the petrochemical input that goes into renewables, I think that's an important message that needs to get out there. You know, a lot of these renewables, they rely on natural gas for baseload, certainly for wind. There's everything, all the petrochemicals that go into all of these other um, technologies. So I, I just think that's a critical message that we have to get out there. Um, what else at Oceaneering as far as including in, in everyone in this new workforce? So a ton of diversity and inclusion is needed in oil and gas. As a woman, I find myself often, you know, the only woman in, in a room of 100 people. Certainly there aren't any rooms lately these days that I'm in. I would kill to be the only woman um, <laughs> in a room of 100 people right now instead of working from home. Um, but once we start getting back, you know, we do not have 
a diverse enough workforce. Certainly not diverse enough to, you know, really bring about the changes that are needed. So how are we going to track those? What are you doing at Oceaneering as far as DNI? I know y'all have resource groups, employee resource groups, and making sure that everybody comes to work as their authentic self. I love it when you told me one time about how, because I am a Trekkie and you know me, um, you know, you don't have to put your shields up. Don't spend your energy putting your shields up. I think people see our industry that way. So what is your thought behind that? Well, I think. Number one, it, it's that. I mean, everybody needs to feel like this is a place where I can come and be me. Yeah. And and I will tell you, I'm one of the first people, and we've known each other for a while, but I'm not really big on being a, a really formal person. I really like to enjoy and, and be able to tell a joke or or to laugh with people or to you know ask them about their weekend and, and things like that. And I want everybody to feel that same level of comfort that I do. That I can be, I can come and I can tell stories that might surprise you about how I spend my weekend or whatever. And I want to hear yours too, because that's what makes, first of all, it's what makes work interesting when you're working with people that don't all come and tell the same story about what they did this weekend or, or where they come from or anything. But, but it's also about competitive. And, mm-hmm. and I think everybody gets this when I start to talk about, when you look about at, at the population of people that are graduating from universities right now. And if you don't have access to hire or to attract women or people of color, you're not going to be competitive. If you're limited to some sub, some sub segment of the college population or the university population, you're going to be out a lot. And so we have to be able to make those people feel welcome and, and that they'll, they'll also be able to be successful. And so I think that is, that is a lot of what this conversation is about. And, and when I talk to people, they realize it's not about, it's not about a shift that should make anybody feel personally at risk. It's about how we build a competitive company where everybody gets to contribute as, as much as they possibly can. And, it, and it's really fun. I mean, you ask, what are we doing? Um, one of the things that I've enjoyed about the, you know, the, the quarantine lifestyle, if you will, yeah. is I've been able to do a lot of uh, video chat coffee meetings. And these coffee meetings have been with groups of, you know, different diverse groups of oceaneers around the world. And before I used to kind of hold off on doing these until I could travel and be there. Well, you know, it's, it's a flat, it's a flat world right now. So, so I've been yeah. having more of those and I get to talk cool. to people and it is so much fun mm-hmm. because, you know, there, there are some challenges out there that we need to take care of, but there are so many great stories of getting to meet the people and how unique they are and this in their backgrounds and the things they bring to the job when the shields are down it is it has been a, it's just been a blast i feel like you touched on one of the most critical parts of that which is it doesn't mean we have to exclude anyone else you know we don't have to exclude the people that have been in this industry for a long time you know they are allies they can help and and so i feel like a lot of of people have you know and and don't feel threatened by a focus on trying to bring in more women and, and more people of color. Um, but I think being an ally, even if you are not, you know, diverse yourself is critical and important. And I have seen you do that over the years. And I've always appreciated that out of you and your leadership. And you've always certainly been there for me. Um, so speaking of the world being flat, okay, we can talk to anybody, but we can't really see their faces. This is the first time you and I have sat across from each other. You're technically my boss as the chairman of PISA, and we haven't seen each other 
in six months at least. So what's been kind of your, what's your great quarantine learning? What's something awesome you're taking away from it? And what's something that, man, it really sucks. <laughs> so, so the awesome is um, learning some new skills. Yeah. And, you know, I, and, and we're in this great studio today, but I have also learned how to shoot videos with my iPhone and, and even do some processing and, oh, and cool. you know, got, got a little bit of equipment, which, you know, I, I like, I like the sound and audio equipment. So I've got some of that stuff and I've been able to do that. And it's been a great equalizer. I mean, we talked about the DNI chats that we've had, mm-hmm. but you know, it used to be, I'd spend most of my time with the folks in the Houston corporate office because you just, you're in the halls and you engage and you do everything. And because they're the ones that you see are the ones that can just pop in, which I love. Um, they're the ones you talk to, but now, now it's, it's very easy. It's the great equalizer, right? That it's the flat world that I just mentioned. I'm talking to people all over the world all the time. And, and it's not just the planned ones, right? It's, it seems like the more we do this, the more I get the drop-ins from other places, whether it's emails or, or, you know, a Google hangout, a quick pop-up to say, Hey, do you have time? We've gone from, from texts, you know, phone went away and then we texted and now somehow we're now we're on video. Oh, really? <clears throat> and so people will say, hey, can you jump on video real quick? I want to ask you something. Just like on a FaceTime. And, and yeah. that's been so much fun. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's probably the, the best part. Um, the toughest part is that even though the, all those things are great, all of these things, communication is engagement. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's been, it's been harder. And, and I, I do town halls. One of my favorite things is we always do town hall, the town hall meetings with, with a pretty big audience. And then we, and then we broadcast it around the world. So everybody can share in. And most of the time we do it live so that we can get live questions from around the world too, for those who want to stay up late enough around the world to, to be there. <laughs> yeah, that's But, the uh, but it's just different. I mean, I, you, I can still do the video and I still get excited about telling the story. But it's not the same as when there are people in the room mm-hmm. and you're talking to people you know and you appreciate. And, and you can and feed you, off their and energy. You, yeah, and you can see them smile and all of those good things. Sometimes you see them smirk a little bit because and then you're remembering something that maybe they, <laughs> they're thinking of when I say that. But, yeah. um, but, but those are tough. It's, it's really tough to be away as a leader. I'm sure it, it is. And, and I agree. You know, it's, it's tough to not have that exchange with the people that you work with, especially when you're driving strategy. You know, sometimes you need people in a room really to talk about you know, the problems that you have and how you're going to accomplish, you know, and get past. Uh, we have struggled with that a little bit, but it has been great. I agree to be able to talk to whoever, whenever, you know, without especially living in Houston and our crazy commutes, you know, mm. all over the place. And certainly I know you were traveling a ton internationally before all this. But we can spend more time with our families and see everyone. But I'm ready for back to a hybrid. I know my kids just went back to school today, um, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Your boys are at Texas Tech, right? They're up in Lubbock. Yep. They're in Lubbock. And so they're there and half half remote, half in person, probably. Yeah, right? and they're and they're in they're in the dorm. Uh, I've got the two brothers sharing a dorm room. I didn't know with, that. With that many with that many hours together, so far there's been oh no casualties, gosh. but you know, <laughs> long may it last. That's funny. Well, I mean, we'll see how it goes with school this year. I think we're all prepared, you know, to take everybody back remote if we need to, and 
how do you think all of this is going to impact the industry in general as far as demand? You know, do you think that we'll get back in the first quarter, like we're kind of hearing the analysts say? Um, what do you, what do you think? You know, how do you see that impacting oil price as far as really when we're going to be able to come back to some levels of production? I think <clears throat> I think things are temporary. I mean, I I'm not a a believer that this is a global reset. I, I do think that it's you know the travel. Um, you know, especially airline and, and uh, airline fuel demand and, and a lot of the travel demand around fuel, I think that's going to come back, but it's going to take, it's going to take a, a really good vaccination and, and a belief in the vaccination to get people confident to get, to get back in airplanes at the same level. I do think business comes back faster. I think most of us will, and, and because it's generally, it's the people that are most comfortable with travel, first of all, and there's a necessity involved. But I think you'll get, you'll get that back. And I do think that we're going to start to see that happen sooner rather than later. I think we'll, and, and I think we're already feeling it. Some people, even even without a vaccination, are just feeling like it's it's time to start getting the wheels turning again. So I think that we'll see um, we'll see an increase that uh, that is happening in 2021. I'm not sure if I believe. In fact, I would say I, I'm not confident that we're going to see you know this downward slope of 20 that looks like a an inverse in 21. I don't think we're going to get back to the beginning of 20 by the end of 21. Right. That's, that's, that's a pretty high expectation because there's so much, yeah. there's so much pent up supply and, and demand won't, won't snap back. Um, it's not that spring loaded, but I think, I think there's, it's going to be 21 is going to be a, a tougher year than 20 mm-hmm. in some ways, maybe in other ways where it, it feels like, you know, the, the future uh, seems more predictable. And even though it's a slow improvement, it's an improvement. And it, and it feels like we understand where the world is going. I think that will, even if it's a, even if it's a lower activity year, it should feel a lot better than 2020, but what wouldn't? <laughs> <laughs> we need predictability, <laughs> yeah. like just for a minute, yeah. you know, but it, it does look like that that's what, you know, next year, if it yeah. could just be some slow predictability, just a slow growth, then that will be good for all of us. Um, what do you think on this podcast, as far as you know, next year and moving forward, what can we really do? What can we show and highlight as far as how the the companies in the oil field are going to contribute to that growth, to the energy demand, and how we're part of the solution to the challenge of, of climate change and to, you know, really those voices on energy transition? You know, I think there's there's so many really cool stories out there that people would immediately identify with. You know, the things that we're doing that are both exciting from a technology standpoint, but but also exciting from a from a, you know, we're we're moving with the world. Uh-huh. We're not stuck in place. And and I think about things like, you know, think think about things like electric rigs and and yeah. and, and electric um track sets and and all the things that we've changed because we knew where we were going. We knew that we had to change. Um I think about all the stuff that's going on offshore where we're talking about instead of bringing a vessel out. And operating an ROV for a week, and then and then taking the vessel back, that we we drop the ROV off, and it works underwater with with a battery pack for a week, and then we come back and pick it up or, oh, or wow. longer. Yeah. Um. I think talking specifically, you know, about some of these great things that we're doing, and people starting to think about, wow, this could have an application somewhere else, or in some cases, we borrowed something from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. We took we took technology from from aerospace. We took technology from entertainment. Mm-hmm. And and we brought it into the oil field 
And then we start to feel like we are part of the technology ecosystem. Mm -hmm. We're not an outlier. We are not. <laughs> we are. I feel like we are leading the technology <laughs> ecosystem and just getting that message out. You know, I, I think about just this weekend over Labor Day weekend, uh, we watched a documentary about NASA and how all of the of this tech and some of the things that we enjoy in daily life that came from the space program. You know, a lot of things that we use daily, things beyond Velcro and Tang, I know that you would normally think of. Um, but really, so much of that is going to come from the oil field. And I just, I appreciate being able to talk about everything that Oceaneering is doing, because I think you guys are in such a great, a great place that shows how you can touch so many different industries and how we can contribute um, to a smaller environmental footprint, to a safer industry and in taking care of our people um, and doing it with a diverse workforce that, that we're going to be able to attract. So the last question I'll ask you, I know in quarantine, you're a, con you're a musician. You haven't been able to go to any concerts. Uh, how? What's the first one? What do you have on your list that you're counting on that you're going to be able to get back? So, so I missed the big stadium tour, which was supposed to happen here in Houston. That was Motley Crue oh. and Def Leppard and Joan Jett and Poison. So that was going to be <laughs> such a, for, especially for someone of my age, such a great throwback concert. Those are my guys uh, too. And we, and uh, so hopefully that's coming around next year and we'll all be able to go. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, that'll, that'll be a kind of a, would be a great way to get back in the, in the arena, so to speak. Have you seen the socially distant concert layout, you know, where it's outdoors and then, you know, there's six or eight people you buy a platform and they're six feet away from all the other platforms i think i think it, it looks good because they're physically there i think and it makes such a big difference i mean we talk about leadership music is the same way mm -hmm. i mean musicians play better when they get when they feed on when the energy from the crowd the people, and then yeah. and then the energy you know in the crowd is people feeding off of other people so we, they got to be close enough so they can, you know, so that can all interconnect. Yeah. But, but if it happens, if, if they can hear each other's voices and they can feel the energy and everything else, it's going to be way better than watching it on TV. Well, I can feel the energy with us on the podcast <laughs> and you've been a great first guest. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, again, Rod Larson, president, CEO, Oceaneering International. Um, and we are signing off now. Thanks everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on another great episode of the Energy and Transition podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It's the best way to support the podcast and to grow our community. Also, if you want to reach out to us, please go to our website at energyandtransition.com and we'll catch you in the next episode.